we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast, and we have a special episode for you. So regular listeners would know that this is a podcast that deals with news and politics and changes in our society, and we normally look at the events of the past week and discuss the implications and look at the uh, longer-term ramifications and the underlying reasons for things that are happening. And there's normally a panel of three of us who do that. But this is a special episode, and uh, dear listener, over the last few weeks we've had the uh, Scott Morrison has come out and declared that uh, his government will provide an extra $4.6 billion of public money for private schools. And we've done a little bit on that, and we've done a bit about the history of Goldburn, and, and we've tried to explain why we think that's just a really bad idea. And one of the things that keeps coming up when I have discussions with people is just that the quality of teaching at a private school is better, and that the discipline is better, and that kids won't be bullied, and that... Yes, it is unfair, perhaps financially, but ultimately the kids get a better result. And to answer those sort of questions and provide an expert opinion, I've reached out to a fellow called David Gillespie, who is a recovering corporate lawyer in Brisbane, and he uh, is probably possibly more famous for his book about sweet poison, which was dealing with uh, sugar. But he's also written a book called Free Schools, How to Get a Great Education for Your Kids Without Spending a Fortune. And David Gillespie is on Skype with me right now. David, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, Trevor. Thanks. Thanks for agreeing to do this, David. So, um, yeah, no worries. So, yeah, as I said, we've, we've kind of previously dealt with the history um, and the financial aspects. But what I wanted to talk to you about is why do... Publics, well, well, the argument is that that the private schools perform better. And mm. um, in your book, you've you've got a few notions that we need to get through. Um, it's not that the kids are necessarily well. Well, you tell me uh, if you um, if you were sitting at a barbecue or or uh, you know a dinner party or something, and somebody mm. <laughs> has the temerity to, to suggest this to you, what what are some of the key arguments that you say to people um, trying to convince them that, that the public sector is just as good as the private uh, as the private sector? Well, I mean, there's no guarantee that it is, so mm-hmm. let's start right there. It's yep. not that I'm saying that that all public schools are just as good as all private schools um, because that's simply not true. Not all public schools are the same and not all private schools are the same. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 I always use the word private to describe the public schools in Australia that have the ability to also charge fees. Um, it's what we generally call private schools here. But they're all public schools because they're all paid for by the taxpayer and they're all paid by, given roughly the same amount of taxpayer funding by the taxpayer. And that's, as I understand from what you've said before, you've talked about the bizarre and arcane way that we fund our schools in Australia, which is really very unique as far as the world is concerned and is probably dramatically destroying um, our results as we speak. But putting all that to one side, um, you don't 
just because you pay extra, just because you throw in a bit more money on top of what the taxpayer is already paying to educate your child at a, at a private school, gives you exactly zero guarantee that they are going to be getting any better education than the child attending the state school next door who is not tipping in extra money. Um, uh, the, the, the data on this is really, really solid. When you compare apples with apples, that is, when you compare a child with the same demographic background who is attending a public school with a child who is attending a private school, and I, I put that that rider in there about same demographic background because they are not the same as a population because as a general rule, public schools educate the whole Australian population, whereas private schools only educate the top half economically of the Australian population. So you are, you're not able to compare kids in the lowest half who attend private schools with kids in public schools in the lowest half, but you are able to compare the ones in the top half. Um, and when you do that, you find that the results are roughly the same. Mm -hmm. um, the Catholic sector is a little worse than the public sector. The independent sector is sometimes a little better than the public sector. But we're talking, you know, three-tenths of bugger all, honestly, um, in terms of differences. When you compare like with like, you get very similar outcomes. Yep. So, so when you talk when you, when you talk about studies, I think in your book you referred to a, a Victorian study, but but you're uh -huh. saying that there's a number of them, right? That they've yes. done these comparisons. Yes. Uh, I mean that book came out in 2014. Yep. Uh, and and a lot has been done on this since then um, because it, it, it started to gather a momentum of its own. I mean to the point now where we're seeing a distinct trend away from private school. When that book was released. The trend was very much towards private schools. So the pro private schools had been growing in size and population uh, for the 30 years prior to that. Uh, now that trend has reversed and now we're seeing people starting to vote with their feet. Uh, and in fact, the numbers of people in private schools are decreasing, which is, of course, the reason why the private school lobbies are so heavily lobbying for more money. Mm. Um, they have a population problem. And their primary source of funding is the taxpayer. Uh, so they need more dollars per bum on seat um, from the government in order to remain profitable. Mm -hmm. so, so why do kids from, so is this correct, that kids from higher socioeconomic um, families, communities, yes. perform better than kids from lower socioeconomic communities? And I believe their intelligence levels average out the same. So why do they perform better? Um, because they have an advantage. Um, if you use an analogy of um, a foot race, 100-metre sprint, let's say, um, the kids from higher socioeconomic backgrounds uh, have been in training for their sprint um, for five years before they start. Uh, and the kids from lower socioeconomic backgrounds uh, have never pulled on a pair of sand shoes before they get to the start line. Yeah. Um, which ones do you think are going to do better? Mostly the kids who've been training are going to do better than the kids who haven't. Um, and mostly the kids who have the better equipment are going to do better than the kids who, who have nothing. Um, that's what happens in our school system. Right. They all front up to the start line in year one, um, and some kids have been training for five years before they get there and have a lot better equipment. Um, and some kids haven't been training at all and have no equipment. 
Um, and so the kids with the training and the equipment tend to do better. So, now, so that training and equip that training that you're talking about for kids, yes. of, you know, at five years. Is, is mum and dad reading to them and showing interest in their capacity to talk and communicate and stuff? Is that what we're talking about, is the well, training? Or what? yes and no. I mean, that, that's the obvious thing that most people lead to is the training, you know, say household full of books, et cetera, et cetera. But what it seems to boil down to when you have a close look at the research is not so much um, explicit items of training but more of an attitude, um, which is households that value education, households that place a value on learning and improving your learning throughout your life tend to have kids who start from a higher position than households who don't value that, mm-hmm. meaning that, that, that there are other priorities in that household. And they might, they might be very simple priorities, like making sure there's enough money to pay the rent this week. Um, and, and so it's having the luxury of having other things to worry about, like academic achievement. Yep. Um, and... Uh, now, good education systems, this doesn't matter. Now, good education systems take kids no matter where they come from, no matter how they, what advantages they've had before they get there, and they, they, they bring them all up to the same standard so that their socioeconomic circumstances do not affect their outcome. And the OECD actually has a measure of this, which they call academic resilience, uh, and, it, and it's it's the chances of a child from the lowest quartile economically um, performing in the top quartile academically. Uh, now, the chance of that occurring in Australia is 30%, which is about just a smidge below the average for the OECD, um, which is not good, by the way. Mm. I mean, there's you know, over, over 30 countries in the OECD, and, and for us to be a smidge below the average in that group um, in anything academic is, is a real concern. Mm. Um uh, but Australia is, yeah, so you've got about a, a 30% chance if you are in the lowest quartile economically in Australia of performing in the top quartile. So that means it's still possible. It's just, you know, less possible than flipping a coin, okay? Um, in high-performing uh, countries, in countries that do really, really well academically, uh, that chance is 75%. Yeah, yeah. So you have a much better than even chance of outperforming your roots. In, in, in other words, you have a much better than even chance of uh, overcoming any disadvantage you might have had academically when you started. And that's what we should be looking at. If we're looking at an education system in Australia at a policy level, what we should be saying is, what are they doing? What are they doing to overcome that disadvantage? Why do their results not skew towards the, the more advantaged people? Um, that's what we should be looking at a policy level. At a, at a local level, at an individual level, what we should be saying is um, what schools are doing that here because not every school is the same. In some schools, you've only got a 10% chance. In other schools, you've got a 90% chance. You want to find those ones that have a 90% chance. Yes. Yep, yep. So... Um, and I guess my point is... Uh, sorry to interrupt, yep. but I guess my point is paying for it is no guarantee that you're getting a school with a 90% chance. In fact, there seems to be absolutely no correlation, and I've done the numbers, seems to be no correlation between your chances of, of producing progress in, in, in education and how much money you pay. Mm. What, what about the idea that uh, in the public sector 
the, the classrooms are a battlefield and the teachers are barely keeping control of, of kids and that in the private sector they're able to expel kids and get rid of them so that, you know, more time can be spent learning and less time just on class management, behaviour management. What, what, do you, what do you think of that? Uh, it sounds untrue. Um, if it were true, I mean, there's some logical... Uh, you know, it sounds like it might be that there's some logic to that maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it were true, you'd expect something to be obvious, which would be you'd expect the academic results of kids in the environment you described, this mythical environment where bad kids are expelled and only the good ones are kept and everyone can focus on their work. Yep. You'd expect their results to be better, wouldn't yep. you? Yeah. Um, and it simply is not the case. Yep. Um, so either it's not true or... Um, it doesn't make any difference. Yep, yep. So the actual data measuring kids um, proves that they're actually achieving the same, whether they're in, a, in one of these so-called. Uh, I, I think the re- I think the reality is I think the reality is that since two thousand and ten, when every classroom in the nation was invaded by tablet devices, and they now are compulsory, mm-hmm. um, a teacher having any kind of control over a classroom. Is sheer mythology. Right, um, that's a depressing the reality thought. Is, no, well, look, and it's true. My next book, by the way, is about teenagers. It comes out May next year, um, and and we have just gone through a fundamental paradigm shift um, in the way our children interact. Um, they now have personal technology, something that did not exist between before two thousand and ten, and certainly did not exist in the classroom. Mm. Um, that personal technology is loaded to the brim with software which is explicitly designed to be addictive. Mm-hmm. Um, the chances of a teacher, any teacher, competing with the internet in a classroom are close to zero. I don't care. You could be the greatest teacher on the, uh, the, the, the earth has ever known. Mm. You are competing with the internet in a modern classroom, and I don't care whether you're paying to be there or not. That is not a competition any teacher can win. Yeah, I think I'd say to some of these people, look, you've got a, you're painting a mental image of, of a physically dangerous classroom at times, but um, perhaps the most dangerous classrooms are, are where there's the sort of mental disintegration of kids, the sort of bullying that's done, you know, online and, and things okay. like that. So let's, and and, and, and I'd that. say to let's, people let's, that that's going to happen in a private school, public school, wherever. That's just universal if it's going to happen. That that sort of thing. And, and, okay, yeah. so what we know about bullying is it isn't any more prevalent in public schools than it is in private schools. Mm-hmm. So that's that's hard data, okay? That, that's, that, that's not just me talking. That's hard data because that is the kind of thing people study, which is does it make a difference to bullying? Answer, no, it doesn't. Um, when we're talking about physical versus um, electronic bullying, the reality is that since 2010, physical bullying has been in a nosedive mm. in public and private schools. Mm. Every kid of that generation, which is Generation Z, every kid of that generation is experiencing significantly less risk physically, not just from bullying, but from all the physical things that affected us as children. Um, so yeah. they're much less likely to get drunk. They're much less likely to have a teen pregnancy. They're much less likely to do drugs. They're much less likely to be physically bullied, they're much less likely to take physical risks, they're much less likely to be injured in a car accident. And I am talking massive differences in incidents. But the overall rate of bullying is actually increasing Mm. because it's being replaced by electronic bullying. 
And that is happening in government school classrooms just as much as it's having in private school classrooms. Paying for your education is not a shield against that. Yes, and I, I think... I think people would accept that as, as sort of common sense. They could they could see that would be their case. Yeah. Yep. Here's another argument you get, you know, mm-hmm. the old school network, you know, that by going to one of these sandstone, you know, schools, you'll 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 have all these contacts and you'll rise yes, up through yes. the stratas of society because of the people you meet and the connections you make. Oh, can, I, can I let you into a bit of a secret here? <laughs> if you're not if you're not already in that club, yep. Going to a school and paying fees to that club mm-hmm. is not going to get you in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so the people, yes, there are school networks, there are old school networks, and yes, some of their children go to certain schools. But hanging out near them, paying to be standing in the vicinity of them, mm-hmm. to be attending school with their children, doesn't get you any greater access to them than hanging out near them in the supermarket. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a it's it's a myth. Uh, perpetuated by wishful thinking. Mm-hmm. I would say that perhaps in the old days, maybe 40, 50 years ago, connections, well, we're both ex, well, I'm an ex-lawyer and you're you're a recovering corporate lawyer. Are you still practising as a lawyer or not? <laughs> no, I still do practise as a lawyer. Right. I, uh, I work for the federal government. Right. But in private practice, for example, in a law firm, um, you know, when they're taking resumes for prospective uh, employees, for example, out of out of uni, you know, they're looking for grades. You, you've got to have incredibly good grades to get through to these big four firms. And if you don't have them, it doesn't matter who daddy is, you, you're not getting in the door. So well, as, as one example. Are, yeah, grades are experience, but yeah, mm. you're absolutely right. I mean, yeah. look, I, I think there are undoubtedly, there is a strata of society, mm. a very, very high strata of society that mm. most of us do not have any access to whatsoever, mm. where being so-and-so's son might get you a job that you might not otherwise get. Um, But um, I don't think happening to have gone to the same school as that person is going to get you in the door. Um, You know, that that is, as I said before, just wishful thinking, and there's no empirical evidence that any of it is true, or or more, more accurately, there's no empirical evidence that you obtain something that you didn't already have before you went in the door of the school. Yeah. I'll just give one other um, anecdote on this issue is is by going to one of the big private schools, financially you could be doing yourself a disservice in another sense in that um, what one of my sons did um, very well at high school and uh, a local, um, well, the Gap High, and uh, he was school vice captain and got an OP1 and had a great um, CV and... When he applied to QUT, uh, he got a full scholarship. And I remember when I submitted it, because um, I, I handed it in personally for some reason, and the guy who I handed it to, no, actually it was one of my other friends who's involved in the university, said that uh, faced with two applications that are identical, except one kid went to a, a public school and the other one went to a private school, they are more likely to give the scholarship to the the kid from the public school. So that was interesting. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking for scholarships, your chances will actually increase if you come from a public school. Uh, there have been some interesting studies on dropout rates uh, in university. As a general rule, public school kids tend to uh, are more likely to finish a degree than, than private school kids. Mm. So, um, you know, there's lots of interesting theories as to why that might be. Um, maybe they don't need to for starters, but... but um, 
you know, and I think it would be sheer speculation to, to suggest why, but but the data is there that, that they are more likely to finish. Um, so that's interesting in itself, I guess. Yes. But, but, I, but I think when you, when, you, when you step back from it a little, also something else has changed between the generation of your children and you uh, and me and my children um, is that when we went to school, uh, we were at the very start of, um, well, at least I was. I, I was. I finished high school in 1983. So uh, that, and, and I went to a, a big private school. Um, and they uh, were at the very early stages of Australia deciding to pork barrel, Australian politicians deciding to pork barrel their way into the education sector. So that school had existed for, you know, the better part of a century before um, the taxpayer funds came rolling in yep. and was just starting to get used to it then. Um, so uh, it was a it was a very different place then and the system was very different. University entry was still very restricted um, and you really needed to get those high entry schools or you weren't going to be going to university. Mm. And one of the things that those big private schools specialised in was manufacturing those schools. Um, so there might have been some justification for paying the money if your aim was to get to university because statistically your probability was higher that you would be um, simply because they were engineered that way. They were engineered to deliver that product. Um, now uh, every school is paid the same by the taxpayer. Every kid who wants to go to university can go to university. They might not get the university or the course that they want, but there's certainly nothing stopping them going to university. If, you, if that's what you want to do, you will go to university. Mm. I mean, according to the news last week, worst case scenario, you could become a teacher. Um, yeah, <laughs> right. Since, since the university seems, the university seemed to be accepting teachers with, with you know, almost negligible students. You know, that, that's now. By the way, on that point, I think there's a lot of difference between getting into a university course and making it all the way to a classroom. Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot of people worrying about nothing there. Um, but that's an aside. Um, just, just on teachers, um, yeah, you, yeah. you made an interesting point in your book about class sizes. Would you just like to tell yeah. people how Australia compares in terms of class sizes and whether it matters and what's going on in, 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 in other countries? We have one of the lowest class sizes in the world, um, probably only matched by the United States and the United Kingdom, two of the other countries which are performing as badly as we are. Um, uh, we have persistently reduced class sizes um, from, uh, you know, the mid-40s in the 1950s uh, to now sort of low 20s, 21, 22 average class size. Um, we also have amongst the world's highest contact hours for teachers. So um, we have very small classes and we have high contact hours, 25, 30 hours a week in terms of teachers actually having to stand in front of a class. Um, when you look at high-performing systems, they have dramatically larger classes. Um, so some of the systems that are, that are beating us in Asia have much, much higher classes, um, you know, up in the 30s, 30, 35 students per class. Um, the, and they have dramatically lower um, contact hours. So instead of 30 hours a week, their teachers are spending 10, 15 hours a week in front of the classroom. Um, and you might say to yourself, well, you know, if, if, if bigger classes with less teaching time get you better results, then isn't the end result of that argument 
that what you need is classes of 100 and one hour of teaching time a week? Well, no, because you've got to look at what's actually going on in those classes. What, what's actually going on is the reason the contact time is so much lower is that those teachers are generally there with another teacher watching. Yes, there's so a lot of mentoring going they're on. They're using mm. a lot of mentoring systems. Mm. They're not throwing teachers into classrooms and saying, figure it out for yourself. They have quite structured teaching hierarchies for making sure teachers are being constantly mentored, constantly evaluated, constantly improving their craft. Um, that's why their contact time is so low because contact time in front of their class is only half of what they do. The rest of the time they're watching somebody else teach their class. I think I read somewhere, I'm not sure if it was your book or somewhere else, that, that up to 70 in a class was was shown to be well, acceptable. Was, was that your book or somewhere else? I, I think uh, there, there's certainly research that says that mostly out of Africa. Um, I think you've got to have a very particular kind of class if you're going to get away with seven kids in it. But, I, but, but, but data in comparable economies to ours suggests that you can get away with 40, yep. um, provided you have certain structures around it. I mean, it also depends a lot on who's on in the class. If you have, you know, 20 kids in a class, it doesn't matter that there are 20 kids in a class if 10 of them are very high maintenance. Mm. Um, you know, that the structure of the classroom and how it's being run makes a big difference but we have focused for too many years on just an absolute number which is how many kids are in those classrooms and 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 focused on driving it down and driving it down and driving it down which makes our education very very expensive per student um, on a world scale and have and we've been driving up that cost for decades yeah you've got given some statistics in your book here now this is in 2004 dollars but back in 1964, it would cost $1,838 to educate a kid per annum. Yeah. And now we're up to $8,297. Um, it's in the same dollars. So yep. it's a huge increase. And you're saying that a large part of that is because of the smaller class sizes that uh, needs... Well, because yeah. it's not... It's not just me. You don't take a class of 40 and put it down to 20 and say, well, that means you get an extra teacher. Mm. Um, it does, but it also means you need more science labs, you need more sports facilities, you need more you, you need more everything, yeah. you need more classrooms. Um, so there is a massive cost to reducing the number of kids in a class. It is a truly massive cost. Um, and it's something that there is absolutely no evidence, um, and I don't mean no evidence, uh, of any benefit whatsoever. Mm. It is the single most expensive thing you can do in, in, in an education system. And I think in, in the book I go through uh, the experiment that, that was going on in Florida and the LA United School Districts where they've done that and measured it. Um, it's billions of dollars a year. For Florida, which is a comparable size to the entire Australian education system, it, it's $4 billion a year, mm. which is a huge cost to, to, to the education system. Um, and that's just from removing two kids from every classroom. Um, you, you you do that for as long as we've been doing it and it makes education massively more expensive than it has to be. Um, and that would be fine. That would be perfectly fine if you could point to something that said, you know what, sure, but we may have doubled the cost but we've tripled the output. Mm. Um, you know, we've, we've gotten significantly greater performance. But, in fact, exactly the opposite has happened. In the 10 years that we've been, sorry, well, now, 18 years that we've been internationally comparing ourselves uh, in science, English, and maths, um, uh, we have been plummeting 
in terms of comparative results. And, and you might say, oh, well, that maybe that just means that the other countries are doing better. But even worse than that, we've been plummeting as compared to us. Right, right, <laughs> you know, compared to our historical abilities. Down compared to us. Mm. A, a kid who's in grade nine now in school in Australia is three to six months behind that same kid in maths and science and English was in 1964. Mm. So we we have actually taken ourselves backwards and the rest of the world has raised forwards. So, yes, yeah, so the 15-year-old, you, you, you give the example, in Shanghai is is two years and nine months ahead of the 15-year-old in yep. Australia uh, for mathematics or something like that, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah mathematics. Yeah. Two years and nine months is a lot at that stage. For a 15-year-old, it's a, it's a significant percentage of their life. Yeah, yeah. Um, and an even greater percentage of their education. Uh, and, and, and I guess this brings me to a point about how we should measure these things. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of talk about NAPLAN results and, you know, performance and all that sort of thing. And, and private schools like to put it about, look how many OP1s we've got, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, all that tells you is that they're very good at rounding up kids who would have got those results in it. Yep, and, um, and getting rid of kids who who, who aren't going to perform, or, or putting them into um, schemes where they're not applying for OPs and they're going through alternative methods so they don't exactly. appear on the books, so the average exactly. consequently looks a lot better. Yep, exactly. Um, so that and that shows you that they're very skillful at that, but it doesn't tell you anything meaningful about whether or not they're capable of producing that on their own. Mm. Um, now the the only way that you can really tell that is if you know what what academics call the game, which is all progress or distance travel. How did we take the child who started at A and take them to B, or did we take them to C? Um, if we have that measurement for every child in our system, and and put it in a, in terms that normal people can understand, like the one you were just talking about, which is our child being two years and nine months ahead, that's meaningful. We, we then know, okay, that's comparable. We know that this, this school can produce, can take children wherever they start and it can have them a year ahead of where they would be if they'd gone to that school. Mm. Um, that kind of information is very important and that kind of information is very hard to come by. So in the book, though, you, you talk about the My School website and yeah. and your ability to look at a school and yep. take a median um, um, sort of achievement for a class and yep. and see its growth over two years and then compare yep. that that to what the state average would be. And you can basically say, you know, this particular class has either done its gain has either been better or worse than the gain than the average gain in the state, and that that is well. Actually, it's, a, it's a little more precise. It's a little more precise than that. What yeah. you can do, mm. yes, it is there. It's on the it's on the website, yeah. and, and in the book, I I go through screenshots. So they're a little out of date now, but mm. they're basically the same process. Um, screenshots from the website to show you how to do it. But but what I am doing is I say. Um, Let's not compare this. Let's understand that in Australia, socioeconomic advantage means that if you just compare absolute results, you all you're doing is comparing schools that round up the richest kids because at the end of the day, that's what it is. Mm. Um, don't do that. What you should do is take your kid. Um, so let's take a school. Uh, if, you're, if, if the children in that school scored an average of 100, uh, for example, uh, on this test, 
uh, on that plan. And then two years later, those same kids scored 200 in the two year later version of the test, so say from seven to nine. Mm-hmm. Um, but the rest of Australia, who also had 100 at that point, so who only compared to the kids who also had 100 at that point, yep. wherever they went to school, if, if they scored 150, then the, the kids in this school that you're looking at actually scored 50 more or, or did actually 100% better than the same kids from every other school in the country who started in the same place. Mm. And that tells you something very, very important. That tells you that this school is doing something that every other school in Australia is not doing. It is moving these kids forward at double the pace. So in that 24-month period, they didn't get 24 months of gain. They got 48 months of gain. And, and my understanding and of the that's critical. My understanding of the data was it was able to take into account, you know, let's say we're looking at kids in grade seven and they're gained through to grade nine. And yep. if there was a big influx of kids in grade eight, that yep, you, they could take those out and just deal with the ones well, who were there in grade seven. The NAPLAN gain data mm. only compares the same kids. Which is so it does not include now the rest of the NAPLAN data doesn't. Mm-hmm. The rest of the NAPLAN data will just show you the results for each cohort. So if you're a school with a pretty ordinary grade seven and you import a whole bunch of smart kids in grade eight and then you sit the test in grade nine, then you get a fantastic grade nine result and it looks like the school's legendary. Right. But if you actually use the game data that I set out in the book, you can just run it and it will show you only the same kids, only the kids that were there in grade seven and again in grade nine. Yeah. Now, if that shows a game, then you're onto a good school. That's brilliant that that statistic is actually in there. It's there. It's just well hidden. Mm. <laughs> so that's the advice to somebody. Like if we've convinced people, don't spend money on a private school, go and find... I'm not saying don't. Uh-huh. I'm saying don't assume because you are, mm. you are getting something for yes. it. If you analyse the game and it shows that, oh, my God, that school we were talking about that was getting 48 months worth of game 24 yep. also happens to charge fees, but I can't find any other school within Cooley of me that's even making the 24, yep. then maybe it's worth sure. it. Um, but but no, no going in what you buy. Yeah, yep, brilliant, brilliant. So, um, well, th- that's excellent, and uh, I hope that answers the sort of uh, questions I've been getting from some friends of mine. So, um, I will put some links on the show notes to um, to your book for people who want to buy it, um, David, and to some of the footnotes to some of the things we've been talking about. And um, and so just tell me a little bit more about this new one that's coming out about teenagers. Okay, so I put out a book every couple of years. My current one is, is about dealing with psychopaths, yes. um, so it's called Taming Toxic People. Yes. Um, uh, but uh, the, the one that comes out May next year is about teenagers um, and, and the dramatic changes that we're seeing in Gen Z, which is the things that I talked about before, you know, huge drops in physical harm, but significant increases in in mental harm. Uh, so massive increases in depression, anxiety, self-harm attempts, suicide, etc., uh, amongst that generation. Mm. Uh, and this book examines the science of brain structure and how what we've changed about our environment is, is taking us from an environment where access to addictive uh, substances and behaviours was relatively rare um, and difficult um, to an environment where 
they have access to it in their pocket 24-7. Yeah. Um, and, and what effect that has on their brain and how it explains what's changing about Gen Z. Mm, yep. Have you ever read um, Nurture, The Nurture Assumption by Judith Rich Harris? Uh, no. oh, okay, I'll, I'll I'll shoot you a link to that. That's an interesting okay. book which looks at uh, how much um, you know genes versus um, you know your environment. And she's got some interesting things about about how how teenagers are, are socialised by their peer group. And um, for the sort of stuff you talk about, you you would enjoy that book. I think I'll I'll, okay. I'll send Excellent. I'll send it to you. I'll take a look. And another friend of mine, uh, Cam Riley, is um, he's producing a book soon, which is talking about um, how companies are designed as basically psychopathic entities because of what their priorities are. And I think yes. your ideas on well, they're they're, they're legally psychopathic. Yeah. Uh, there's a section in, in the book about taming toxic people, which is about uh, you know, corporate psychopaths yes. and psychopathic neighbors and family members. Yes. Uh, and and there's a section in there about the the company as a psychopath. I mean, yes. a, a company by design is is psychopathic. It, it's it, it is told to disregard morals and empathy. Yes. Um, and is given a legal imperative to have regard only to the financial benefit of its shareholders. So, um, to expect it to be anything other than psychopathic with that set of rules yep. uh, is is bizarre. It's you're better off saying, okay, well, we know it's a psychopath. Now, how do we have rules that control? Yeah. Do you suggest what to do <laughs> to change? Oh, oh good. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, right. Good. Yeah. No. No point writing a book about psychopaths and saying, oh, sorry, uh, <laughs> sorry to scare you, silly, but there's nothing you can do. The situation is, is hopeless. <laughs> uh, that's interesting. Yes. I, I just read an article recently. Um, you know how they do personality tests on people and to determine, you know, what sort of characteristics they have and. In this article, um, this this company admitted that um, you know in their personality tests, if they found out that somebody was a psychopath, then, then they would hire them because that was precisely the sort of person they wanted in certain roles. So you know that was their well, thinking. So, I can't think of too many roles where you'd want a psychopath, but I guess um, options trader, maybe. Yes. Um, uh, but other than that, uh, they any, anything where you want them to want them to behave as part of a team, yes. they're a very, very bad choice. Yes, exactly. Very. If you wanted a short-term um, quick fix that looked good but, but underlying was going to create all sorts of long-term problems, and then you might put up with a psychopath um, for that. Well, if you don't need them to mm. interact with or care about other humans. Yes. Um, and now, just that there are very few roles in a modern society where that's the requirement. But yes. as I said, options trader maybe. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So um, interesting. Well, David, thank you for your time. And um, and when the book comes out, um, let, well, I'll probably find out about it and I'll be in contact and, <laughs> and, and ask you for another interview. Yeah, absolutely. No worries at yeah, all. Terrific. Thank you, uh, David Gillespie, author of uh, Free Schools, how to get a great education for your kids without spending a fortune. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and 
search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.